Good evening, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of On The List. My name is Austin Bristow II, and I'm your host. Today is February 12th, and I'm joined this evening by Ben Palmer. Ben, how are we doing, man? I'm, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I like that you uh, intro yourself as Austin Bristow II. I mean, I, I try like to introduce myself as that in things that, you know, are of some import. Um, you know, you, when, is there a story? I, I'm starting early, uh, but is there a story <laughs> behind why you're the second and not junior? Actually, yes. Uh, my father, Austin Eldon Bristow, um, he does not have a first or a senior, uh, just Austin Eldon Bristow, but he goes by Jack. Um, my father and my mother didn't want people to refer to me as junior. Like they specifically did not want that to be a nickname that I would have uh, that people okay. would call me. Uh, so I was instead the second. Um, and over the years, when I tell people that, uh, more often than not, for a period of about a week or so, uh, they they try to get the name, the nickname of Junior, to stick to spite <laughs> me and my parents, and then they give up after about a week or so because it's happened so many times that I'm used to it and it doesn't really bother me. So if you have a kid, is it going to be the third? Is the third going to happen? That is the plan. My fiance and I have actually discussed this. Um, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I feel and, like you have to if you're the second. Oh yeah, and we have we have basically come to an agreement that uh, I can have Austin Eldon Bristow the third um, as my first son as long as she gets to name the rest of the kids. Uh, <laughs> Which, that sounds like a fair bargain. That which we've pretty much already come up with other names for our children as well. So our future children that aren't going to exist for hopefully a while. Um, I feel like I feel like juniors and seconds have a a really like that's the tough decision because like you can just be the junior and then like it ends there and no one you know no one's like ah whatever that's fine. Like I have a friend who's the fourth and he's like I have to keep it going. Like At that point, I'm the fourth. Do. It's been four generations. I have to have a fifth. Like I don't have a choice. But like when you're a second or when you're a junior, if you like let it end there, I don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, how could you not keep it going? Yeah. So I feel like that's that's a crucial decision after the second. Like I feel like third on, you're just kind of like you have to. You're not wrong. <laughs> just hope that there's a son in every generation after that. Right. Yeah. Well, anyways, I'll let you continue. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting into it early. Well, we're tangenting early. This is on the list where tangents are welcome. So if you guys haven't joined us yet, each week I am joined by a different writer from our Pitcherless staff. We like to talk baseball. We talk about what they've been writing recently, and we like to do a mailbag session at the end where we answer your questions on the air. So you can send those questions to us by email at community at pitcherless.com, or you can send them directly to myself on Twitter, and I am at Bristowski. Ben, I know you're on Twitter. What is your handle, yes. mate? I am at Ben J. Palmer, oh, if you would like to so follow easy. me on Twitter. It's so yeah. I joined Twitter really early. I joined it in probably like 2008. I mean, I think that's early. Maybe it's not, but I joined in 2008 because I remember in high school I was told that like Twitter was like, oh, it's like Facebook, except you can update your status from your phone. And so I was like, that sounds cool. So I joined Twitter as Ben J Palmer in uh, like 2008, and I've had the same handle since. Man, I. Uh... I think I joined in 09, I'm pretty sure, 
And the only reason I know this is because I think it lists it <laughs> in my profile. Um, and I think when I joined, I was originally like Bristow underscore nine or something like that. And right around my sophomore, junior year of high school, I rebranded every single social media thing I had to the Bristowski. And I've left nice. since then. Nice. So Instagram, Twitter, uh any username that I would ever need ever is always been Bristowski, all lowercase. Super easy. Nice, nice. Yeah, no, that's that's way easier to remember. All right. Well, you know what? We're already heavy on the tangents. May as well keep it on rolling. <laughs> so at this point is when we like to start to get to know our guest here. So uh, Ben, first off, gonna throw you that curveball. Just tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I've been uh, writing about sports for a long time well i say a long time i uh this is probably i think my fourth season at pitcher list i've been uh i've been with pitcher list for i think this is four years now maybe it's five i don't remember um but i've been writing about sports for about four or five years uh on the side of my actual day job which has changed a lot uh over that time but um, yeah, I uh, let's see. I've got, I'm married. I got two kids. I got a kid who's uh, eight years old. I have a uh, two and a half year old, almost three year old. Uh, and are either my, of them the second? No, neither of them are the second um, because I don't know. I I like Ben. I mean, Ben Palmer's a fine name, but we decided for my. Uh, I have two sons, and we decided to go for uh, Nathaniel Nate as the first one. Uh, and Julian as the second one. Ooh, so, yeah. See, I've got to come yeah. up with a nickname for my son because while my father goes by Jack, which is a long story in and of itself, yeah. uh, I got to go by Austin, the actual name. Mm-hmm. Right. However, my son will have to go by something else other than Jack, his grandfather's yeah, that's name, so... and Austin, his father's name. So my friend, who is the fourth, his name is Alex, and well Alexander, and he doesn't have a middle name. Um, none of the four generations have a middle name. That's almost worse. Uh, yeah. So he just has always gone by Alex, and so has his dad, and so is his grandfather. So there's so many times I remember when I would call his house when I was in high school or whatever. I call his house. And say, hey, can I talk to Alex? And his stepmom say, yeah, sure, hold on. And he put his, she'd put his dad on the phone. <laughs> He's like, hello. Like, oh, um, not you. He's like, oh, you want the other Alex? <laughs> and that would happen all of the time. So yeah, I I get that. You need you need the the nickname to. It's funny that Jack didn't. So Jack's like a weird nickname for your dad. That's funny that that didn't come down to you, because I know I also know someone who is the third and his name is lewis and he goes his uh grandfather went by harry his dad goes by harry and he goes by harry and no none of them know why (laughs) for no reason harry is not a part of his name at all it's not his middle name any of that it just is and they all go by harry and at this point, I don't think any of them can explain to you why. <laughs> That's they amazing. All yeah, my, the uh, the sh- the short version of why my father 
whose name is Austin Eldon Bristow, why he goes by Jack. Uh, his father, Eldon Bristow, um, wanted to go, wanted to name him Jack. His mother wanted to name him Austin. Um, and they fought over that for a long time. He, he is the youngest of three kids, the only son. And, uh, at this, at a certain point, my grandmother, his mother basically said, I don't, uh, or no, sorry. I got backwards. His father, my grandfather, basically said, I don't care what you name him. I'm calling him Jack. So they <laughs> named him Austin, called him Jack, and it stuck so badly that he's he has to now put that as that section of any other names that you may go right. by. Because some of his official mail comes as Jack. But anytime <laughs> he's like bank statements or things like that, he has to put Austin, but right. parentheses or you know quotation marks, Jack. That's so funny. That's Eldon Eldon Bristow though. That's a great. That sounds like the name of an oil magnate in like the 19th century. <laughs> that's a great. That's a good name. Hey, maybe we'll just call my son Eldon. Eldon, yeah. Or that's you know what he could just go by Eldon. You could do there the Austin Eldon Bristow and just call him Eldon. Because like I feel like Austin doesn't really loan itself to. I feel like we've lost everybody in this podcast. <laughs> Correct. The yes. only people who appreciate <laughs> this are like the community members who are just for whatever reason, like Every- really invested in learning about everyone's, the everyone's of my just, life. Everyone's just smashing the fast forward 30 seconds button at this point, which I don't blame them. It's fine. I, I don't either. We're just talking about names. <laughs> whatever. All right. Let's, <laughs> we should probably keep going. Moving. So. Let's actually talk about fantasy baseball. So tell me about the fantasy leagues that you play in. What's your favorite types, etc.? I am in uh, – at this point I'm in I think it's four or five leagues. Um, I've signed up for one or two extra this year, um, including a league we will be writing about on Pitcher List, which is our negative points league. Uh, it's like a reverse league that um, – Miles Nelson has set up or is going to set up where you have to draft the worst players. And I figured I'd join because I'd get to draft some Orioles, which is nice. Um, but um, I, yeah, I'm in about four or five leagues. I have a, a family league I've been running, uh, I'm commissioner of, and have been for, I guess it's nine years now. Um, and I've got a keeper league I randomly joined through a friend uh, that I've been in for about five years now. And I've got two dynasty leagues uh, and then the pitcherless staff league. And that's it. So, And then I'll be joining this negative league. So as far as my favorite, it's tough to say because I really have um, enjoyed being in a dynasty league. I kind of like building my own team and I have the first dynasty league I ever joined which is one that I'm in now is really deep it's uh, 40 man rosters major league rosters and then 20 man minor league rosters nice. and it's um, it's 12 teams so it's a lot a lot of players used and I kind of really like that but I think I, I enjoy just kind of standard head to head you know five by five regular old uh fantasy baseball i would you know prefer quality starts instead of wins uh and i've got actually the keeper league i mean we have quality starts instead of wins and obp instead of average and i kind of prefer that so um but yeah i kind of like just regular old head-to-head fantasy baseball that's what i fell in love with like you know nine years ago so that's what i like yeah i actually started playing on uh, points and i've since 
uh, switched my allegiance to prefer standard five by five head to head. Um, I also prefer on base instead of average though. I last year I actually switched back. I, I at one point was playing with wins, then I switched to quality starts, and I now prefer wins more again. Really? Why? I because like here's so here's why I hate like at OBP over average. You know, if we do average, whatever, it's not that big of a deal. Wins I think are just so arbitrary because I feel like one of the most one of the things you do in fantasy is you want to try and get stats that define a player's skill and wins just in my opinion do not define a pitcher's skill like they're just arbitrary you can give up as a pitcher you can give up five runs and as long as your team scores six runs you get a win does that mean you're a good pitcher no not necessarily but a quality start at least while quality starts are not perfect I feel like they're at least better than wins, or at least more uh, indicative of the skill of the pitcher. I Why do you 100% like percent agree? No, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I, <laughs> however, I think that wins add an extra level of uh, strategy to the game because there is a possibility of chasing wins, going after uh, mediocre players who are facing bad teams, things like that, or, or mediocre players or pitchers who are on fantastic offenses. Whereas if the goal, if your overall goal is to just have the best players be the best players and have that uh, be reflected in your statistics. Absolutely, use quality starts, but there really is no strategy in attempting to get quality starts. It's. I mean, the strategy is get good pitchers. Get, get good pitchers. That's it. Yeah. But I like. I like. But that I mean, that's the same. Can... That's the same strategy you do in all other fantasy sports, basically. I mean, the yeah, rest of fantasy baseball. Fantasy sports. Well, I mean, so even the rest <laughs> of fantasy baseball, the strategy of getting. The strategy of winning on offensive categories is get good hitters. Like there's, is it, um, is it for stolen I bases? I think so. I, I mean, stolen bases, but stolen bases are less arbitrary. Like, of all the stats that are in a standard five by five, most of them are not arbitrary. Wins is entirely arbitrary. I mean, you could have you could have a fantastic. I mean, you could have Jacob Degrom is a perfect example. True. Of a guy who is an incredible. I mean, a Cy Young winner, an incredible pitcher on a terrible team who will hurt you and wins because of the team and not because of the pitcher. And I feel like that's not, I don't know. I, I don't really like that in fantasy personally, but you know, it's not, it's not a deal breaker for me. The family league that I've run for nine years, we use wins and you know, it's list definitely uses wins, right? We, yeah, we do standards. Uh, yeah. So, it's not a deal breaker for me, but I definitely prefer quality starts. But you know, yeah, like I said, I don't disagree that quality starts definitely is a better measure of a pitcher's actual overall skill. I just like the extra level of strategy you can add in with wins. Kind sure, of I can understand the wins that. There. I can understand that. It's a little more streaming friendly. Exactly. Sure. All right. So, moving on here, uh, who is your favorite team? I am a uh, long-suffering Baltimore Orioles fan. My condolences. Uh, yeah, no, it's okay. I'm used to it by now. It's funny because yeah, I'm I'm 28 years old. I'll be 29 this year, and so 
my my family loves baseball more than like life itself. Like to give you an idea, my dad uh, has always said that when he um, when he was looking for when he was dating before he met my mom, he used to always say his uh, qualifications for a wife was that she had to love two things: she had to love him, and she had to love baseball. And uh, he found someone who loves him and loves baseball. And Good for him. I, I grew up going to Camden Yards. Like, I mean, I've been to hundreds of Orioles games. It's ridiculous. Uh, my parents like to joke that my very first Orioles game was when my mom was six months pregnant with me. And then uh, they also took me to an Orioles game when I was like two and regretted that horribly. Uh, <laughs> like just never take a two-year-old to a baseball game. Just would not recommend. Um, and... So I mean I, I grew up I just I grew up in a baseball family. My parents take uh, opening day off of work every wow. year. Yeah, and my mom refers to it as a high holy day in the Palmer household. And I mean every year growing up, every year my parents took opening day off, or they would come home early so they could catch the Orioles game, or even go to the Orioles game half the time. And That's since awesome. I mean for the past probably I want to say thirteen years probably they've had season tickets to the Orioles. Um, not like every home game, but like one of those like you know fifteen, sixteen game plans or something like that. So, I mean, I just I grew up just going to so many Orioles games. Like Cal Ripken is like a holy name in my household. Uh, I can you know I can name all the retired numbers and retired names, and it's just it's you know. So the Orioles have been a very very important fixture in my life for a long time. But growing up in the late nineties. Uh, the Orioles were pretty good. 97, they won the division title, were the wire-to-wire champs until they lost to the Indians, which was dumb. And uh, after that, I mean, when I was really getting into baseball in the 2000s, they were garbage. I mean, they were they were just hot garbage. And then 2012, they started getting better. You know, they went to the ALCS, which was just an incredible season. And now they're just like hotter garbage than ever before. I mean, 115 losses last year was just like, oh, awful. But I still love the Orioles. I'll still go to as many games as I can. I uh, my, my historic game that I was at to show just how much I do love the Orioles, I was at the 30-3 to game. Oh, my where, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for those who may not know, the Orioles set the record for most runs scored against a single team in baseball history when they lost to the Texas Rangers 30 to three, which like sometimes I need to sit there and think like 30, 30 runs, 30 runs is so much. There was like, like I think like Jared Sultalamakia had like three home runs and like, I mean like it was insane. And I not only stayed for that entire game, that was game one of a double header. And <laughs> yeah, and I say for game two, which they also lost by a much more reasonable, like you know, seven to three or something like that. So it was it was insane. But the thirty three game was kind of fun because the crowd just like the crowd was so the crowd got so sarcastic at at one point. <laughs> like it got to the point where like if we threw a single strike, the crowd just erupted. <laughs> I mean, it was just. It was insane. That's and, amazing. Yeah. That's that's it was almost insane. as good as the Orioles game where the stadium was completely 
empty, empty during the riot. Yeah, during after the, the riot. riot. After that, the riot, that yeah. was that so I was work, amazing to watch. I was working at um, Fox Forty Five, which is the local Fox affiliate in Baltimore, uh, when the riot happened. And um, <laughs> the riot started about a mile from the TV station I was at, and uh, it was it was a little scary. And then I just remember driving into work afterwards with the National Guard all over downtown Baltimore, and it was just it was the weirdest thing to see um, military vehicles set up in the parking lot of Camden Yards. And then yeah, they had the game where just there was nobody there. And like my favorite, I think it was. Maybe it was Caleb Joseph or Adam Jones who came out and was like waving to the empty crowd and everything. It was, it was hilarious. I and think one was, of the infielders for the Orioles tossed a ball into the stands yeah. after, after an <laughs> I inning. I think you're right. Which I think you're awesome. right. And like Gary Thorne, who's our play-by-play commentator, who I will maintain, and Alex Fast will back me up on this, is the best play-by-play commentator in like all of sports. Um, but Gary Thorne was having a lot of fun with it, and it was just – it was it was weird and it was kind of funny, and I feel like Baltimore kind of needed something weird and goofy at that time because the riot was just like insane. I mean, it was just it was nuts. Um, but yeah, it was yeah. Anyways, yes, I've been an Orioles fan for a very very long time. I love the Orioles. Like over that time, have I'm, you found yourself with a particular favorite player? Yeah, so my favorite player ever is Rafael Palmero, and nice. that uh, yeah, a lot of people are like, ugh. I uh, firmly believe that Rafael Palmero should be in the Hall of Fame. I think, um, I, I mean, in general, and I wrote an article on this for the Pitcher List. I think the PED players should be in the Hall of Fame. I think Barry Bonds, I'm Roger Clemens should be in the Hall of Fame. That's a whole other discussion. I think regardless of how you feel about PEDs, I think Rafael Palmero should be in the Hall of Fame. And the reason is he was only caught with PEDs in his final year. And even if you just say, okay, let's say he used steroids in the last year of his career, cut that out. He still, in my opinion, has a Hall of Fame worthy resume. And he was just, I don't know. I don't know why I attached to him so much growing up, but I loved watching Rafael Palmero play. He was uh, just had one of the most beautiful swings you'd ever see, and he was just he was a Gold Glove first baseman, incredible hitter, and just the fact that his career went the way it did was just it was really sad. Um, but yeah, I love Palmero. Obviously, I love Cal Ripken because I'm an Orioles fan, and like Obviously. you can't you can't not love Cal Ripken. Like <laughs> just to give you an idea of how like important Cal Ripken is in my, in my household. Um, there was, when I was working at Fox 45, um, we had a bomb threat. And what happened was uh, a guy walked into our station with a vest on and he said, I'm going to blow up this station unless you put me on TV. Now, later it turned out the vest wasn't an active bomb. It was actually candy bars. And he was just a little crazy. But this all insanity happened, and it was a really crazy, insane, stressful day. And I leave, uh, and I mean, everybody evacuates. We all go to this place nearby, and everybody's on the phone with their parents. They're, you know, they're upset, and they're just like, "I'm so happy, I'm alive," and all this stuff. And so I text my parents, and I was just like, "Hey, in case you're here, there's a bomb threat at the TV station, um, but I'm okay." And the first thing my mom says is, "Oh, are you outside? It's raining. What a gross day." I'm like. Yeah. And then the next thing that happens 
is my dad says, did you hear Cal Ripken got divorced? <laughs> and my mom responds, I know, I heard. And I'm just like, well, guys, focus. <laughs> my life was just in danger. <laughs> and like, and like the, the conversation just started derailing into like, where's Cal Ripken going to live now? I hear he's getting a place in downtown Annapolis. And I'm just like, guys, focus. Your parents sound like lovely people. They're great. And and later I found out um, my my parents misunderstood and they thought there was a call in bomb threat and not like like something not less like serious a than a literal person. And like ultimately okay. that person ended up getting shot by police and like it was insane. It was a whole anybody who was in Baltimore at the time would remember this probably. But uh, if you Google it, Fox 45 uh, bomb threat, you'll see it. Um, I was actually I actually ended up on the news because I called 911 that day. So my 911 call ended up on one of the local affiliates. But um, yeah, so <laughs> just and so we just start on this tangent about Cal Ripken's getting divorced and like, oh my god, guys, can you believe this? Jeez, that is nuts. It was nuts. So yeah, long Fantastic. long story short, yeah, the Orioles are really important in my family. <laughs> so my other, my other last last tangent, my my other favorite Oriole story is we went to Toronto when I was in. I think middle school uh, to see a Blue Jays game. See the Blue Jays play the Orioles, and they go to do the anthem. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know, there's a tradition in Baltimore when they do the anthem. For at the very end, when they say "Oh, say can you see?" at the very end, um, everybody in Cabin Yard shouts "Oh!" because the Orioles. And we're in the Sky Dome. Well, it's Rogers Center now, but we're in the Sky Dome in Toronto. And they're doing the national anthem, and we get to the O part, and my mom very loudly goes, oh! And she is the only person in the entire stadium of 30-plus thousand people to shout at the top of her lungs, oh. And everybody looks at us, like everybody, and they're all just like, what the, what is this? (laughs) It was like, it was so weird and so awkward, but... I mean, that's just that's how my parents are with the Orioles, man. They follow them like they're the Grateful Dead. A few years ago, they followed them to uh, Cleveland and then Seattle and then Oakland and then San Diego. Like they follow the Orioles oh. on this coast trip. It was just yeah, so, that's commitment, especially with this team. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? That was like two years ago, and it was just yeah, I know. <laughs> but yeah, All right, well, we do Any, need to keep rolling here. Sorry, so, I can talk about I the guess. Orioles. You're fine. I understand. The Orioles are are, the, are your life. 30 second, thirty <laughs> second forward button. All right. So, is there a, a particular article that you have written that you are especially proud of? Um, I will say, I during the season, I enjoy doing. I uh, uh, every Sunday, I put out a hitter matchups article, and it looks at the hitters you should start and not start uh, during the week. And I feel like um, I enjoy doing the research for that. And I think that can be a really useful article. And I I like doing that. I put a lot of work into that. Um, Other than that, recently, I've been doing a series on the best pitches of each pitch type. And that's been really fun to do. And I those are great. I'm I'm glad you like it. Yeah, I've been um, the final article is coming out. Uh, tomorrow, well, tomorrow from when we're recording this, so uh, Wednesday, um, the, the five, the, yeah, on the five best splitters in all of baseball, and um, it's. I'm not uh, sure I can name a pitcher that throws a splitter besides Tanaka. 
Uh, Shohei Otani. Oh, well, there you go. Otani, he's number five. You know who number one is? I'll, I'll give it to the, the people. Because it, was it not Tanaka? It was not Tanaka. Tanaka, this is now, disclaimer, this is ranked by PVAL. So, um, but Tanaka's, Tanaka's splitter's actually taken a, uh, some steps backwards in the past couple of years, believe it or not. It's gotten knocked around a bit more than it used to. Um, number one was Jorge De La Rosa, believe it or not. Really? Jorge De La Rosa. Number two was Jose Leclerc uh, from that the ranks. That makes sense. He's got a good one. But um, Otani was five. I believe, honestly, if Otani had been able to pitch more, he might have gotten the number one. But um, Jorge De La Rosa's splitter was pretty solid. It had a 10.9 P-Val, 48.6% chase rate, and a 16.4% swinging strike rate. Like, it's a good splitter. It's it's wow. pretty solid. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Kirby Yates is on that list, too, and his splitter's great. It's a, It was a brand-new pitch last year, and it was it was really good. But um, He was throwing a splitter. Yeah, Kirby Yates. Yeah, he just he just started throwing one this year, and it was it it works great as a strikeout pitch. But I also did um, my first article in the series was on changeups. We had curveballs, cutters, fastballs, sliders, and um, now splitters. So I've enjoyed doing that. I think um, people seem to have liked it. So I've I've enjoyed doing those. But on that, I'm proud of every article I write on Pitcher List. <laughs> if you could do a uh, an anti list for best ephuses, that'd be pretty cool. Oh, best Ephesus. I feel like there's only a cut. Like, Granky's got to be number one. For sure. Granky's Ephesus last year was, was so much fun. Bumgarner he, threw an He drops in an Ephesus once or twice a year, it seems. Anibal Sanchez threw an Ephesus every now and then, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. And it was and it was pretty effective, too. Um, but Anibal had a good one. Uh, Bumgarner threw one, like I think, like 20 times last year. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he threw one every now and then, and then uh, yeah, Granky threw his all the time, and I loved Granky's because he would just work it in, and people would just look so stupid swinging at this Ephus pitch. I love the Ephus. I honestly would love to do an article that's just a, and maybe I will, just like a tribute to the Ephus because I sounds like across the seams to me. Make it happen, <laughs> man. I love the Ephus, and it's so much fun. Like the, I remember the first time I was introduced to the Ephus was Casey Fossum. You remember him? I don't know if you remember Casey Fossum. He was a starting pitcher and a reliever for the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. And he used to have this Ephus that he called the Fossum Flip. And it was just this big, slow, looping curveball. And it was that was my first intro into Ephus. And I, I like it. It's, it's a fun pitch. It's an easy pitch to hit if you know it's coming. So you can't throw it often. But when you do mix it in, like Granky did last year, it makes hitters look so stupid. It's so much fun. Back when I used to play uh, MLB The Show, I would always try to make my starting pitcher, my custom player, uh, have an Ephus in his yes. arsenal. And nice. I I could never figure out how to use it effectively, but I always tried. You, yeah, you can only use it rarely. I mean, you can't – you could probably use it two or three times a game, really, if that. Because as soon as a, as soon as a hitter thinks an Ephus is coming, they can just – absolutely destroy it if they're waiting on it oh sure it's it's it is literally like it's a, a it's a batting practice batting pitch, average pitch. Yeah. oh yeah 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 absolutely but when when you work it in effectively and i think granky did that last year it's it's so funny because the hitters just look like idiots they just swing and just spin around or whatever it's it's great i love it 
All right, Ben. So, what is it that you like to do outside of the baseball realm? What, do you have any like hobbies or things you like to do otherwise? Oh yeah, I've got all kinds of hobbies. So I am, um, I I watch a ton of movies, a lot of movies. I love. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk some movies here when we get to the uh, uh, yeah, mailbag I, at the end. That's gonna definitely. be fun. Yeah, I, I it's funny because like it's probably only been within the past like two years that I've really kind of decided I, I wanted to really dive into film. But I watch like I, you know last year I think I watched somewhere around like. 220 films last year um i i i I log all of them so one of the things that i do a lot and that nick likes to make fun of me for is i log and list everything like my favorite my favorite albums movies books video games tv shows uh like you were you were put on the picture list staff less for the picture part initially and more for the list part. <laughs> Actually, so when I joined, uh, Nick had no idea that I did all these lists. But yeah, I uh, yeah I list everything. I log everything. Uh, my friends like to joke that, that if uh, you know if the government ever really wanted data on me, like it, they don't have to look hard to find it. But. Um, yeah, I watch a lot of movies. I listen to a ton of music. That's honestly um, been something. My my first love has, has and always will be music. Uh, and I listen to, I mean, I listen to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of albums a year. I, I make, every year I make a top 200 of albums uh, released in the year. Uh, and, you know, uh, I have charts for lists of top hundreds for every decade and you know it's it's nuts but um yeah i've been really really into music for a long time uh and i also play instruments i play guitar um i play uh i play a guitar for my church every sunday and i play you know banjo mandolin piano uh a little bit of harmonica if i can so a, a little bit a lot of stuff uh but yeah i mean that's my main things I like to do, I like to watch a lot of TV, watch a lot of movies, listen to a lot of music. That's basically what I do outside of writing about baseball. And, of course, my day job, which is as a um, writer, a journalist about healthcare. I write about healthcare as my day job. So there's that, too. <laughs> Fantastic. Good stuff all around. Well, there you go, guys. That's all you need to know and more from Ben Palmer. <laughs> All right, so now getting to the part that people are actually here for. We are continuing our rankings debate series here on the list, where each week my guests and I will debate my personal rankings, which you can find on PitcherList.com. We're going position by position till we're all the way through. And this week, Mr. Palmer and I will be discussing shortstop. So it's a fun one. Shortstop is a very, very deep position all of a sudden. After years of it being one of the thinnest positions on the infield, it is now arguably the deepest. Uh, maybe maybe <sighs> only behind third base. I'd say shortstop is deeper than second and first pretty easily. And, of course, catcher. So you can find yourself a good shortstop at many points throughout the draft. However, uh, there are points that uh, Ben thinks I've got some guys just a bit too high and others a little low. So let's get on into it. And the first guy you have listed here for my two highs is Adalberto Mondesi. Maybe the most interesting and the most uh, controversial 
player in yeah. the 2019 offseason. Yeah, I, and you know what? Honestly, so looking at your rankings, you've got Mondesi as your ninth overall shortstop. Um, Ranked and, ninth and, overall, yeah. Right. And then if we compare that to the NFBC data, sorry to cut you off there. No, no, you're good. You're good. If we compare that to the NFBC data, <laughs> I'm pretty much in line. I, Like I said, I've got him 49th overall as the ninth shortstop. They've got him at the 43rd spot in ADP from January 1st on, which makes him their seventh shortstop. So very similar ranking there. Yeah, and honestly, I, I get it. Like, I get the upside. He was absolutely insane last year. I mean, just absurdly good. I, I When I was doing Batter's Box last year, I must have I written about him every day, basically. And... I get it, and if you want to have him as a top 10 shortstop, I think that's fine. My main thing is having him over Corey Seager. That is – I think I would personally take Corey Seager. I get the risk of Seager coming back from Tommy John, Um, but it sounds like, at last I heard, Seager might be ready opening day. And if that's the case, and you know, I think recovery from Tommy John is generally, generally he, sh- I, I think he should be fine. And if he's able to be Corey Seager, which is like a, a 290 hitter with, you know, 20 to 25 home runs, I think that's that's really valuable. And Mondesi, I, I just. I don't know. Mondesi is just a huge risk to me because because oh, he's definitely a risk. Oh, a huge like, risk. I think that Mondesi has maybe the single he is the single player with the widest range of possible outcomes for twenty nineteen. Oh yeah, for sure. Because for sure. On the high end, he could hit two seventy with twenty five homers and sixty steals. Like oh, that yeah. is oh, yeah. a very attainable ceiling for him. Oh yeah. But the the flip side, the low end there. He could hit 210 with 10 steals or 10 homers and 18 steals, which is unrosterable. Right, right. Well, I mean, so, I mean, you take a look at his steamer projection. His steamer projection is a 253 hitter with 21 home runs and 42 steals. That's absurd. Like, I mean, and that's steamer. Like, steamer is notoriously conservative. So, um, the bat, the bat, um, uh, Derek Carty's projection system, which I, I like, projects him at 241, 21 home runs, 35 steals steals that's still a really 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 valuable player and if you want to chase the upside of Mondesi that early I get it because the payoff could be massive but I just generally speaking when I when I'm drafting I'm a little more risk averse than most people I think and I feel like I feel like Seeger's a little Safer, provided he's healthy, and I think we'll know more about his health as drafts start in March. Um, but if you know, if you hear like mid-March when your draft is starting, like yeah, Seager's on track for opening day or shortly after, uh, and he's going to be you know fine, he'll be Corey Seager. I feel like he's safer. Uh, his upside probably isn't as big as Mondesi's because of the speed. Sure, but yeah. Seager won't get you any steals. No, he's not. He he'll get a much, you like much higher steals, floor. Yes, yeah, and and I I think I tend to go for the higher floor guys um, earlier in the draft. So if if Mondesi's going in the sixth round, 
fifth or sixth round, I might go for a higher floor guy than a higher ceiling guy. Usually I like to Understandable. go the lottery ticket high ceiling guys later. And I just I worry that if you draft a high ceiling, low floor guy in the fifth round, you um, risk decimating your team. And I think that can really, really hurt your team if you if you draft a high ceiling, low floor guy and he hits the low floor in like the fifth round. So um, if you know if, if you draft Mondesi over Seager, I don't think that's crazy. Like I'm not going to be like, what? You're insane. But um, I, I don't know that I personally would do that myself. Sure. And I just have uh, two things to say on that, and we'll kind of move on from Mondesi here. Um, Seeger actually ha- does have an ADP significantly behind uh, Mondesi at this point on NFBC. He's, his ADP is at 85 compared to Mondesi's 43. Um, so most of the industry seems to think that uh, he should be taken a little later. And uh, I'm personally, I'm not a huge uh, Seeger fan, never really have been. Um, he hits the ball on the ground a bit too much for me, uh, especially for a guy with a little... Little, very little speed, but I will will admit he is a very high floor player, especially where in terms of batting average. And I think he is very reliable to give you, like you said, twenty to twenty five home runs. As long as you're not expecting thirty plus from him, I think you're in good shape. Right. The other thing, just real quick, I have to mention. Any time Adalberto Mondesi is brought up, I have to bring up Spot, which is the statistic that I am still working on, um, stolen base opportunities taken. Basically, yeah. it's a it's a rate stat for how often a player attempts to steal a base um, when given the opportunity to do so. Now, with Spot, a good Spot, like a good mark, would be about 20%. Uh, any higher than that, like 25 or more, that's like elite. Last season, Adoberto Mondesi had a 50% spot. 50%. No, he definitely, I mean, he he stole bases all of the time, constantly. Like, and like, what, what are in, things- in, in all of my spot research that I've done, and I've got data going back to like 2001, there is no one close to that rate. Yeah, and I, that that is a saying. Holy crap! He is willing to steal all the time, and b saying there's almost no way that he can steal at this rate next season. There's almost no, no way it can so. continue at that rate. That's one of the things that worries me. Is I I get worried about drafting players who put on phenomenal second halves or put on phenomenal last two months because I worry about the for lack of a better term sophomore slump in that I, I i worry i worry that people will uh that players will adjust to him and kind of figure out he's going to constantly steal so they will prepare for that um and i just i don't know i personally i just i i i worry about drafting guys who were hot last season for the first time and uh it just some and sometimes that burns me, and that's fine. But I just, generally speaking, I tend to be a pretty risk-averse fantasy player, and I feel like Mondesi is just so risky. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not going to draft him ever. Uh, I just, I feel like his price is so high right now, and yeah. I just, I worry about drafting him at that price. Understandable. 
Now, the next guy we don't need to spend a ton of time on because we've actually talked about him in this series already. And that is Jurickson Profar, who was brought up during our first base uh, discussion with Dan McNamara. Now, Profar, I have him ranked as my 12th shortstop at 105th overall. When we compare that to NFBC data, uh, he has got an ADP of 121, which makes them their makes him their 14th shortstop. So pretty similar ranking there. Um, and I'd like to hear where you're at on Profar because I've given my points before, so I can just kind of push back if I feel that is necessary. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've I've wanted Jorickson Profar to succeed for like I don't know four years now. And he just kind of has it. And I, I was excited to see. I, I've got him in one of my dynasty leagues, and I was really excited to see him do well last year. But moving to Oakland, I, do, I don't know that I believe in the power. Um, he had you know 21 home runs last year, and that came with 16.3x home runs. And not, not only that, but he's moving from uh, Arlington Park, which is a great hitter's park, to Oakland Coliseum, which is a terrible hitter's park, especially for home runs. And uh, on top of all that, he had just a 5% barrel rate last year. So I'm not sure that I believe in 20 home runs, and I think more like 15-ish home runs. And if he bats in the 250s and he hits like 15 home runs, he's basically Marcus Semien. And I can get Marcus Semien way cheaper, or even better, I can get uh, sacrifice some power, get Andrelton Simmons, and get him to have steal 15 bases and hit 11 home runs at bat 290, and I can you know I can get Simmons way cheaper. So I don't know. I I worry that Profar regresses pretty significantly last uh, next year, and uh, yeah, I just it's mostly the power, honestly. Like I, that's the main thing I don't sure. totally believe. And I understand that. And if there was anywhere that I could see a major aggression coming. It would be power. But I think we can expect his batting average to increase next year, even moving to O.co. Uh, he had a 269 BABIP last season, uh, despite having a 22% line drive rate and 37% hard hit rate. Um, so I, I, would, I would expect he hits closer to 280 um, this coming season after a 254 average because... That 269, honestly, I don't think that's anywhere close to what he deserved last season. I think he deserved much higher. I don't know. So so he had the 254 average last year, but he that came with the 263 X average. So, I mean, that, that – What was that, his X Babbitt? His, so his Babbitt was 269. His X Babbitt was 289. So, you know, I, to, to say 280 is an average, I don't know. If he can reach that – and hit 15 home runs, sure, I can get that right. And I also think he can be a decent steal source because he stole 10 bases last year in 10 attempts. He's very efficient on the base bats. Yeah, Plus, sure. a big thing for me um, in overall value, yeah, he might lose a few home runs, but he's also supposed to be hitting, according to roster resource, second in a sure. very potent athletics lineup he's going to a much better lineup worse park better lineup so he's right. going to be hitting second in front of you know matt chapman k Riss davis and matt olson so i appreciate I think, that you call him k Riss davis 
I mean, <laughs> when, when you're on the air and you're saying it out loud, you kind of have to. Right. I know. Yeah. I, well, I feel like if you're talking fantasy and you say Chris Davis, everyone knows you're not talking about Orioles Chris Davis. Not anymore. Who had, who had the worst season in the history of Major League Baseball players, but whatever. Um, no, I, <laughs> I, I get that. And I get he's going into a good lineup. And I like, you know, if he does bad second all year, I like that. Um, yeah, it's definitely just, a good run source. I just honestly, I don't, I don't know that I believe he can hit 280. I, I don't. I, I don't know that he can up the average that much. I feel like he hits in the 260s and hits like 15 home runs. And you know, I'd rather have Glaber Torres, honestly, than that. Or I'd, I'd, I, I, or I'd probably rather have Angelton Simmons. I feel like Simmons is uh, not getting the love he deserves because I feel like he's a pretty decent power speed source with a good average floor. Um, so, yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, so Profar, I mean, Profar used to be a top prospect. So the number one prospect right, in baseball. Right, he was the number one prospect in baseball. And so, of course, it's possible that he does this and part of me you know I kind of hope he does like I said I've got him in a dynasty league so I hope he does but if I'm drafting I think I'm taking you know you've got him ahead of Glaber Torres Elvis Andrews I think I'm taking them over him probably so but I'm going to own a lot of Profar this year yeah you you very well may he's he's one of my one of my guys this year so I'm very high on him and I I like I liked what I saw last year, and I think it could continue. And I seem to be within the minority, and that is what it is. We will see how it goes for me. Yeah, I feel like I feel like in the Jerks and Profar camp, there are people who just really believe in him, and people who do not believe in him at all. And it's and it's there's not really an in between. Yeah. So, and you you know you believe in him, and you know hopefully he does well. I you know that would be great. I've I've wanted like I said I've wanted him to succeed for a long time now. So. Absolutely. So let's get into some of the guys you think I'm a bit too low on. Now, the first one here is uh, Garrett Hampson. Uh, now, I have Hampson. I actually didn't realize he was shortstop eligible until you mentioned it. I had him listed as a second baseman because I knew that was where he was uh, potentially going to be playing in the Rockies lineup. But I do have him ranked uh, as my 26th shortstop at 253 overall. Uh, a bit lower than the NFBC data. They've got him at a 206 ADP, which makes him their 20th shortstop. So uh, my thing with Hampson, I'm a, still a bit concerned about playing time. Uh, the Rockies have had a history of not really trusting their young players with much playing time over the past five years or so. Um, with whether it's Ryan McMahon, uh, Raimel Tapia, etc. Um, so I would love it if they just threw him into second base and said, have at it, buddy. It's yours. Um, and I understand, you know, signing of Daniel Murphy, I was a bit concerned there until they were like, yeah, he's playing first and we're shifting Desmond out to the outfield. Um, but Ryan McMahon and Brendan Rodgers are still in that system, and they're both pretty much majorly ready, as Hampson is as well. And... No one's moving uh, Trevor Story off a shortstop. No one's moving Nolan Arenado off a third base or Murphy off a first base. So it's just second for those three players. So I, while I think that Hampson might be the best of them uh, and might 
and definitely probably would be the most fancy relevant given his speed. Yeah. I'm just a bit concerned that he'll have that opportunity. Plus, I also think if he even if he does, he's probably going to hit in the very bottom of that lineup, seventh or eighth, um, maybe only in front of Tony Walters. I think everybody else is going to be hitting in front of them. So seventh or eighth in the lineup for a speed guy is not necessarily a great thing. Sure. No, I, I, I can understand that. Um, I think... I think what might put Hampson at second is his glove. He's a fantastic defender, and I think um, not not to knock Brendan Rodgers or anything, but I think the combination of Hampson's bat with his and specifically his speed with his quality glove might keep him at second base uh, more often than not. Um, I get I get the him hitting low on the lineup, uh, you know that that does take away a handful of at bats. But I mean, when you have the combination of he's got incredible speed. I mean, don't you know? Don't forget that in high A. Now again, this is high A, but in a full season of high A, he stole 51 bases, and last year he stole um, just under 40. So you know, and he hit 10 home runs. So he's got a you know a little bit of pop. But I mean, I feel like his ceiling is a lot of fantasy relevance. I mean, his oh yeah, ceiling, his ceiling is like a two ninety hitter with forty steals. Oh yeah, like, and like that's, 10 that's, home that's runs. That's absurd. And like yeah. ten home runs, yeah. Yeah, that, that that's a ridiculous ceiling. And playing in Coors Field obviously makes everybody better. Um, so yeah, I, I get I get what you're saying. I, I get what you're saying. We know with the Daniel Murphy signing and. With Brendan Rodgers there, um, but I, I could see Hampson getting a decent amount of work at second base um, because of his glove. I think he's a much better glove than Rodgers is. Not to say that Rodgers is a bad glove, um, but I think Hampson is like you know potentially a Gold Glove level second baseman or shortstop. Um, so you know. If an injury happens, I think that helps him a lot, obviously. Um, sure. Not that you can count on that in the draft. But, uh, yeah, I, I feel like he's kind of an interesting lower-level guy. Uh, you know, you've got Paul DeJong and Eduardo Escobar as the last two shortstops. Uh, I might draft in my top 20, yeah. In your top 20, I mean. I probably would take Hampson over them just because of the potential. You know, I, I, you know, I just, when you're and drafting- honestly, if we get to closer to opening day, like we get into spring training and if there's some, if I see some quotes from Rocky's management or front office saying Hampson is the guy, yeah. uh, we, we recognize that McMahon and Rogers are here, but we're giving the reins to Hampson. He's going to be our guy going forward until he makes us change our mind if he performs poorly. If I hear rhetoric like that, he's shooting up my list because that's sure. my biggest concern is that he's not the guy. Yeah. So once I – if I start hearing some rhetoric like that in spring training and as we get closer to opening day, then yeah, he's definitely going to start going up. And I could easily move him above guys like Escobar like you mentioned. Yeah, I mean like you've got Chris Taylor ranked ahead of him. Um, I feel like – at the point where – so you've got Hampson ranked as your 253rd overall player. 
that late in the draft, I'm drafting ceiling. I'm drafting lottery tickets, and I feel like someone like Chris Taylor is not that. Um, and I think Hampson is that because of the ceiling we just mentioned. So, uh, yeah, I, personally, I would have him ranked a little higher. I'm not saying you know you have to draft him, and I'm not saying he's a, you know a top ten shortstop or anything crazy like that. But I feel like top twenty. You know, the lower half of the top 20, I think, would make sense. But like you said, you know, it's you know, it's early February, so we don't know exactly what we're going to get from him or uh, how much he's going to play. So that's definitely something we need to keep in mind. Now, I know this is the shortstop preview, but he is most likely going to become second base eligible. So uh, just real quick, would you take him just yes or no? No, don't need to expand anymore. Would you take him over Jed Lowry? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Uh, no, I don't think I would. So Jed Lowry is 241st in my rankings, really? which you may say that's too low. Uh, would you take low, him over like. Willie Adamas? Yes, yes. Joey Wendell. Oh, I like Wendell. Um, that's close because Wendell, I think, is guaranteed more playing time. And how about Jonathan VR? My Oriole. Uh, no, I don't think I would take him over VR because VR, I would almost, I, VR is guaranteed playing time because he's like, you know, the best player on the Orioles now. He's a big fish in a small pond. So, so he's I've just, got VR at 172nd go. overall. Yeah, no, um, I, I would and take Wendell VR. is right at 209. So it sounds like moving him right around the 200 mark would be a bit where you, closer to where you think yeah, should be. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. I think he's, I think Hampton is a guy, if you're drafting today, you're taking him at the end of your drafts, um, just as a lottery ticket. Uh, you know, like you said, if we if we hear closer to opening day that, like, Hampton's the guy, and I think that's entirely possible that he is the guy. Um, if we do hear that, I think he just vaults up the rankings like crazy oh absolutely like i said that's that's all i need to hear and he's yeah. shooting up close maybe even top 15 for me oh yeah oh yeah, yeah i mean just the ceiling is absurd so yeah it's great now one guy that i do have slightly ahead of him at the 24th shortstop spot is jorge polanco now i've got him 24th like i said 227th overall compare that to adp data and i'm basically spot on with them they've They've got him at 216 ADP, 23rd shortstop there. Now, I'll be honest, I was surprised to see that uh, Polanco is listed as too low because I kind of like Polanco. Um, he showed some really nice upside in the second half of 2017 and continued that good work after a suspension in 2018. So I went and I looked. Um, if you take his numbers from August 1st of 2017 until the end of 2018, so it's basically just... Um, the la the last like two and a half months of the 2018 season because he had that 80 game PED suspension at the v- they served. The yeah, that was. Season. I can I just say that was so painful for me because I did this. I was a huge Jorge Polanco pusher last year. Yeah, I did. I did a whole article on him about the big progress he made in the second half of 2017, and then he gets hit with this PED suspension. And I was just like. Oh, you gotta be kidding me! Like, yeah, it's awful. So, if we look at the, from 
August of 17 until the end of 18, which is 132 games in those games there. He put up a 299, 358, 478 slash line with 16 home runs and 14 steals. And he also had an 8% walk rate and just a 17% K rate in those 132 games. Both solid figures there. So he was actually good. Like that came out to a 125 WRC plus. That's not like even he was pretty solid. No, he was good. Yeah. At 299 average. So he has been good for two separate half season chunks now. Yeah. The question is, can he do it over one full season? I think I think he can. I don't see any reason he can't, honestly. I mean, the only reason he's done it over two half seasons was in 2017, he made some major changes to his approach. He got uh, – his plate discipline got significantly better. His chase rate went down. His swing rate went up. He um, started swinging uh, – swinging and missing less on breaking uh, pitches, off-speed pitches – uh, his ground ball rate plummeted in 2017. His launch angle got better. I mean, he just he made a pretty definitive change to his approach in 2017, and I really like that. Like one of the things I love when you see a player who does well in the second half of a season, or just he makes a big change. I like to look for a definitive skill change. And if I can find a definitive skill change where a batter has changed their approach or a pitcher has changed a pitch or their repertoire or something like that, then I, I feel more comfortable believing in it. And Jorge Polanco did that. I mean, he, he made an effort and he made a change to his approach. The PED suspension kind of messed things up. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I still believe in him. And I think he proved that last year when he came back. I think people just completely forgot about him while he was suspended. And uh, when he came back, he was just available everywhere. And I remember writing in the hitter matchups article frequently, like, you should pick him up because he's hitting really well. Like, he's shown that his success was not because of PEDs. Uh, and so I think it's not like he's only done well in two halves of the season because of injury. There's no reason he shouldn't be healthy and fine for this entire season. And if that's the case, you know, it's entirely possible he hits like 280 and goes 15-15. Yeah. And that's a, so, that's a that's a pretty valuable short. That's that's Andrelton Simmons, you know, or even better. That's yeah. a, I, I think that's definitely a top 20 shortstop for sure. And I think that's uh, entirely yeah. possible. This is the first guy that I was like, yeah, that's 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 too low like even i was surprised to see unless it's too low like i said but still i do agree so i just actually bumped him up as we as you were talking there i moved him over the likes of willie adamas and uh joey wendell yeah marcus Semyon. he's now at 205 as my 22nd shortstop so yeah, I, still, I might I might have him a slight bit higher but you know i still have him behind uh Kitel Marte is the next one there Okay. So Kitel yeah. Marte and then Paul DeYoung is uh, twenty-one and twenty, respectively. Sure, I don't think I don't think that's crazy. So yeah, that's that's fair. So yeah, there you go. You convinced me. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I think yeah, I think uh, he's definitely someone you should grab at the end of your drafts because 
the potential there is, is is a pretty solid shortstop, pretty solid middle infielder that I think you're going to be able to get essentially for free. Yeah, and there's and, been almost no talk about him or writing right, about him exactly. at all this offseason that I've seen. Like last year, he was kind of a trendy sleeper pick with the yeah. improvements he made. Uh, but this year, almost nothing. And so this I is should, a true uh, sleeper this year, I think. Maybe I should do it. would be a really easy article to do. Of, like, don't forget Jorge Polanco is not dead. Like, hey guys, that an article mm-hmm. that's basically just like, hey, remember what he did in 2017? Like, he kept that up in 2018. Please write an article that's one paragraph long that says, "Hey guys, <laughs> go read this article and hyperlink it." <laughs> He's still doing that. Done. Yeah, like <laughs> you should. Don't forget, he's not dead. Like he did. Yeah. <laughs> he's alive. <laughs> now the. the uh, Last guy we're going to discuss at length here uh, was a guy that, as soon as I went to go look at his, his profile, I was like, oh, I am too low. <laughs> and that is Jose Peraza. Now, I will be honest, I had not up to this point taken a good look at what he did in 2018. Um, so I guess my my first question is, why did nobody tell me that Jose Parada at, added power to his average and steals profile yeah. in 2018? Like, no one mentioned that, I feel like, all year long. He has been a guy who's hit two, three home runs a year, and last year he hit 14 yep. out of basically nowhere. But he backed it up with the numbers. He increased his fly ball rate. He increased mm-hmm. his hard hit rate. And his home run to fly ball rate didn't spike ridiculously. Like, it, the numbers back up the new power. And I'm just legitimately wondering, how did I not hear throughout the season or up to this point in the offseason that Jose Peraza now is not useless in power? Because up to this point, I was I was thinking of him as like a 270 to 280 hitter who will get you 25 to 35 steals and score a lot of runs in a good Reds lineup. But he'll give you no power. Yeah. Well, knowing that's, that's that he what could he used give to do. you, knowing that he could give you ten to fifteen home runs, is huge improvement in value. Yeah, it's it absolutely, and he he kind of changed his game a little bit last year, and and included that power, and I think that um, really increased his value a lot. I remember at the beginning of 2016. I was, uh, or no, sorry, it was the beginning of 2017. I was a big Jose Peraza uh, believer because of the year he had in 2016 where he had 21 steals and batted 324. I was like, this is a guy who's going to hit for a really good average, give you a lot of steals. He's worth drafting at the end of your drafts. And then he batted 259 with 23 steals, and everybody was like, that was dumb. But um, <laughs> that was also the year I was a big Travis Jankowski believer. So, you know, Ooh. I was I was 0 for 2 with stolen base guys. But rough year, buddy. Um, yeah, I know. Well, Jen, I mean, to be fair, Jankowski's got great speed and he was actually sort of valuable uh, for a short period last year. But anyways, <laughs> um, yeah. So out of nowhere, kind of Peraza changed things up, amped up his hard hit rate a little bit. His um, 
his barrel rate wasn't as embarrassing. <laughs> it still was bad. Uh, he was in the bottom 8% of the league, but uh, 27. Oh, yeah. Let, let's be clear here. Peraza is not a power hitter. Oh, no, God. By no. any means. So, so he, basically. But he went from a guy that is literally useless in power right. to a guy that is pretty respectable. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, he he increased the power a little bit, and that's a big deal when you get a, when you get a stolen base guy. Um, and uh, sort of not related. I I just realized now that um, so whenever we wrote batter's box last year, uh, me and the other writers who wrote it, we usually came up with a pun uh, for the for the featured player. And I just realized that I wrote an article. I wrote a batter's box on Jose Peraza that I titled "Yes Way Jose." And a few months later, uh, Jonathan Metzler wrote an uh, article on Jose on Jose Peraza called "No Way Jose." <laughs> <laughs> so, not very original there. Um, Classic way to go, Metzler. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it was not very original, but I think. You know, Jose Peraza's power increase, I'm not sure I believe in 15. Like, he had 14 home runs last year. I don't know that I can – that I believe he can hit 15 or something. But if he can hit 10 and steal 20 to 25 bases and hit in the 280s, that's a pretty solid fantasy producer right there. Like, you know, he, he like you said, he went from basically like Billy Hamilton power, which is like – you know, one day you look at your team, you're like, Jose Peraza hit a home run to uh, to like, oh, he's actually hitting some home runs. And if you can get if you can get a two eighties average and twenty to twenty five steals out of Jose Peraza plus ten home runs, great. I think that yeah. is that is a solid, solid player. Even if you were getting two home runs out of him with two eighties average and twenty five steals. That's a halfway decent fantasy asset if you need steel. Absolutely. But to get so, 10 home runs, I think that's that's pretty good. So now that I realize he has power, prior to that, I had him ranked as my 17th shortstop at 171 overall, uh, which was significantly behind the NFBC ADP of 95, which makes, them, makes him their 13th shortstop. But now that I realize he has power... I immediately shot him up my rankings. I've moved him ahead of Tim Anderson, Ahmed Rosario, and Elvis Andrus and put him at 122 overall, making him my 14th shortstop now. I think that's so, good. Yeah, I like that. That seems like a good spot for him. I just uh, – the, the guy I have him immediately after. I couldn't uh, justify taking him ahead of Tyler Glass now, who I like quite a bit. I, I like Glass now too. That's, that's fair. I think that's fair. And like – so I think a good um, – Projection for Peraza. If you look at the bats projection for him, 13 home runs, 283 average, 26 steals. That sounds 100% reasonable. Uh The one thing I would add on to that projection, uh, 82 runs may be too few because I believe he's hitting leadoff for the Reds and they're going to have a sneaky good lineup this year. Yeah, I I agree, especially with, uh, with Puig in there and potentially uh kemp however they work him in there i mean like that's no 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 kemp only (laughs) no uh, no kemp please it's i want oh gosh why am i blanking on his name jesse winker you're thinking of winker Winker, yes no no no. i want no kemp only winker i have i i had winker in obp league last year and he was like a total stud i want winker out there too but 
406 OB. I mean, like, like listen to this Reds lineup. Peraza, Scooter Jeanette, Joey Votto, Eugenio Suarez, Matt Kemp, Scott Shepler, Yasiel Puig, Tucker Barnhart. That's the roster resource projected lineup. Outside of even, Tucker Barnhart, that's a pretty solid lineup. Even the Reds are potentially going to bat Puig 7th. Which is nuts to me. I, you know, I don't know. Honestly, I'd put him fifth where Kemp is. I, like, yeah, especially that great. Was one thing I was so excited about was he's not going to be at the bottom of the lineup. If they don't put him higher in the lineup, I'm going to be they so should. sad. And they should. I, especially in a hitter's park like Great American Ballpark, like they, they need to. And I think I, I'm pretty high on Puig myself this year. I like Puig a lot. I've, so I've liked, so I've liked Puig for years. And uh, Nick has always given me crap for it the past couple of years, <laughs> but it it worked out last year, and uh, I think it'll work out again this year. I, I like Puig's talent a lot, and to be in a hitter's park like Great American, and hopefully to be batting in the middle of a Reds lineup, you have to think if they take Kemp out and they put in Winker, you, you know Winker's not going to hit in the middle of the lineup. He's not a power guy. He's an on base. No. He's an on base guy. So, though, though uh, uh, Jamie Sayer actually wrote a really good article on Winker that says he might actually have some power uh, behind him. Uh, if Winker can tap into some power, he's going to be just. Uh, so- long story. Sh- long story short, uh, he had a shoulder injury that he's dealt with for the past like two or three years, and he just now had surgery to fix it. Prior to that, he had shown power in the minors. And so if he's fixed now, he's healthy, there could be power in the majors. Oh, that would be amazing. I mean, given his OBP, that would be fantastic. He's he's basically mini Votto, but we're yeah, not talking about Yeah, he is. He is. Well, yeah, actually, yeah. Looking at this, 2013 in low A, he hit 16 home runs. Yeah. And then you. 2014, he hit 15 home runs between high A and double A. So, yeah, I mean, there's power that's that has existed there. So if he can hit like – Linker is a guy that I – am still very high on despite him not currently having a place to play because I think the talent yeah. is there and he is going to f- make his way into playing time. I but we'll I, save that for yes. the outfield sorry go ahead we'll, yeah. I've got two I've got two outfield podcasts we're going to do break it up into two different podcasts one is going to be like one through 30 or 35 or something like that and the next one will be like from where we stop to the end <laughs> 35 to 70 or whatever Anyways, yeah, we should move on. Yes, you're right. Sure. You had a couple here that you just wanted to kind of cursorily yeah, mention. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, Jonathan VR and uh, Jonathan Scope, two uh, Baltimore guys, or at least former, yeah, uh, yeah. recently Baltimore guys. Um, so neither of them are shortstop eligible in ESPN leagues, which is what I have my eligibility rankings set for. Um but both of them are going to be shortstop eligible in Yahoo, correct? Correct. Yeah, they uh, they both hit the eligibility uh, thresholds for uh, Yahoo. So let me pop over to my second base rankings. See where I've got them there. So I actually just recently moved Scope up. I took a close look at him, uh, partly because you suggested I do so. Um, <laughs> no joke. Like after you're like, uh, I. I'm a huge I'm a I am a huge 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 scope believer this year. I think I, I basically am ready to completely write off last year. I just I after hearing your podcast with Nick, 
where you talked about scope for your um, draft review. Yes. Yeah. I, I went and took a closer look, and I was like, yeah, okay. I, I, I still like the profile that's here. Yeah, I just um, I just so don't believe I've that got, guy his age in his prime just just dives off a cliff for no reason basically. Yeah, so I have got him now at one fifty six. Um, he's my twenty. He's my thirteenth uh, second baseman at one fifty six. That put him right around the Tim Anderson Ahmed Rosario range of shortstop. But if he was if he was shortstop and second base eligible, I'd probably bump him up a little bit because I do value positional eligibility. I would probably have him right around Peraza, probably ahead of Peraza between him and Glaber Torres, which is like a 120 range. If it's me, I'm putting him like you've got Profar. At, I think I'm putting him right ahead of Profar, right below Segura in your rankings. Okay, so, so right, got, at the, right at a 100. Yeah, you've got you've got okay. Profar as shortstop number 12, Segura at shortstop 11. I'm not sure that I take scope over Segura, but I will. I think I'll take I'll definitely take uh, scope over Profar. Scope over Glaber Torres uh, is closer, I think, but I I think I'll take scope. Uh, it's close. I think I would take scope. And if we look at VR, uh, in my second base rankings, I have VR ranked 16th um, at 172 overall. So if we look at 172, that puts him right around uh, Andleton Simmons behind guys, other speedsters like Ahmed Rosario and Tim Anderson. I'm just not very convinced with VR. We've seen him be. We, we've seen one season of him being amazing. We've seen one season of him being terrible, and then we've seen a half season of him being terrible and a half season of him being very good. So, so here's my thing with him in Baltimore. He, I mean, Baltimore is the best. Is arguably one of the three best hitters parks in baseball. I mean, I feel like it's cores, and then especially if you read. I would highly recommend everybody read Eno Saris's, um Park Factors article that he wrote on The Athletic. Um, he kind of dove into Park Factors a little bit better than just about any other Park Factors I've seen. And one of the things he found was that, you know, shocker to nobody, Baltimore is a great hitter's park. And it always has been. Uh, and I think VR is going to play every single game. Uh, because, like I said earlier, he's like the best player on the Orioles. So he's he's a very big fish in a very, very small pond. And as long as he's healthy, he's going to play every game. I think he's going to run wild. I don't see any reason why he wouldn't. The Orioles the past three-ish, basically throughout the Buck Showalter uh, time, never really stole bases. They were dead bottom of the league and stolen bases every single year. And I think that was a Showalter thing. And now they're under a new regime with a new manager and Brandon Hyde, uh, who studied under Joe Madden, among other people. And I think Brandon Hyde's not going to hold back on steals. So if if VR is batting at the top of the lineup, which I think he will, and if he is basically got the green light whenever he wants, which I think he will because the Orioles are in kind of like screw it, why not season this year. They're, I mean, they're not contending. So they're like, you know, why not? Let's give it a shot. Um, I think VR, you know, we've seen VR two years ago, three years ago, steal 62 bases. I don't think he steals that many bases, 
But, you know, he sold 35 last year. Could he steal 40? Yeah, I think that's 100% within the realm of possibility. Oh, he could. I think he could steal 50. I think he could steal 60. Uh, and I think the power will be there because of where he's going to be. He's going to be in Camden Yards. He's going to be in Yankee Stadium. He's going to be in Fenway. And he's going to be there a lot. And being in the AL East, it's a lot different than being in the National League. Uh, you know, so and he's he's a um, he's a switch hitter. So if he's able to take advantage of the short porch in Yankee Stadium, if he's able to take advantage of pesky pole when he's batting lefty in uh, Fenway, you know, I don't think that fifteen to 18 home runs is out of the realm of possibility with a 250s average and 40 to 50 steals isn't that kind of like Adalberto Mondesi at a way cheaper price what what some people are thinking of Adalberto Mondesi could be so I just checked the ADP for him uh, they've got him actually at 83 so much higher than I expected you give you give a great case for him, and I think 172 actually is way too low for him. I'll probably move him up closer to like the 120-ish range um, to have him closer to guys sure. like uh, Elvis Andrus, Jose Peraza, etc. Because I think there is still significant risk with VR because we've seen the downside in his sure. what was it, his 2017 season, um, but we've also seen the upside in his 2016 season where he can be a top 10 fantasy hitter. Yeah. Yeah. So he's another one of those guys like like Mondesi that we talked about where he's got a very wide range of possibilities. Yeah. Um, and if if you're able to get him at a decent price around like pick 100 or so, um, that could be a could be a great pick for you with uh, not a ton of risk. Yeah, behind I, it. I think if you if you showed up from the future and you told me, hey, Jonathan VR in 2019 stole 60 bases hit 20 home runs and batted 270 if you told me that after i said how did you invent time travel i would then say that does not surprise me at all like i'm not saying and the third thing you'd say is (laughs) on what team did he play for in the second half (laughs) that's a good question no it's a good question that's definitely a possibility. If he's lighting it up in the first half, you bet the Orioles are going to sell him for all he's worth. They they have no loyalty to anybody right now. If they can they can get value out of you, you're gone. So, but yeah, I'm I'm not saying at all that 60 steals is going to happen with Jonathan VR. I don't think it will. But if it happened, I wouldn't be like, what? You're crazy. That's insane. I can't believe that happened. I I would be surprised, but I wouldn't be totally shocked. He's got the speed sure. to do it. He's done it before. I think more realistically, forty. I think 35 to 40 steals is completely within the realm of possibility, yeah. uh, if, not, if not a likely outcome. And I think the power's there. That's what he was. I remember when he was a prospect with the Astros, he was billed as a high speed with good power guy. And I think he's, I think he could do that again this year. Okay, fine. I'll move him up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I finally convinced you. Good stuff. So the guys we talked about here for our shortstops, uh, Ben thought I was too high on Adalberto Mondesi and Jurex and Profar. 
uh, which is the second time that I've been told I'm too high on Profar now. Um, Maybe you should take a hint. He thought, uh, <laughs> no, you can't make me. Um, he says I was too low on Garrett Hampson, Jorge Polanco, and Jose Peraza, all of which I agree with. I've already moved up Peraza and Polanco, and I'm going to take a closer look at Hampson. Uh, and then uh, cursorily low on Scope and VR, both of which I have Scope I've recently moved up, and VR I will be moving up in the very near future. So well done there, especially on the two low. Oh, thank you. It's beyond pretty much all of them. <laughs> great cases. Thank you. All right. So we're going to finish it out as we always do with our questions. If you want to hear your question answered on the air, you can send that to us by email at community at pitcherlist.com, or you can tweet them directly to myself on Twitter. I am at Bristowski. It's probably the easier way to get to me uh, so that I can see those right away and get them into our next show. Or so, or you can join or, our Pitcherlist Discord. Even better, because a lot of times, I w- almost everyone, almost every week, I will ask on the Discord, hey guys, I've got uh, this person coming on, i got Ben Palmer coming on, and we need questions uh, f- for him to ask. All of our questions this week did come from Discord, because we pushed up our recording date a little bit, and I forgot <laughs> to ask elsewhere. So, That's all right. actually, all the questions this week came from Pitcherless staff. Because the staff came in and had some great questions, <laughs> almost none of which are baseball related. We're talking movies. So First the three. first one here is coming from uh, my good buddy Dave Chairman, and he wants to know what is an underrated movie that everyone should watch. Give give me like uh, two or three max, maximum three. Oh, underrated movies that people in like in general, because I know he yes. listed out a couple specifics. Oh, I did not notice that. Go ahead and give those specifics. So, so he that. listed uh, one of Chronicle, Stuck in Love, or Once. Sorry, those are my notes. Oh, those are yours. I th- those are, like if I was giving, if I was giving, uh, if I was giving one here, I would say either Chronicle, Stuck in Love, or Once. So I will, be, I will agree with you on Chronicle. I think Chronicle is fantastic. Oh, it's brilliant. It's a found footage style film, and I know not everyone is can jive with that, but it's so realistic. Chronicle. Michael B. Jordan is in oh, it yeah. as a like teenager, and he's great. And um, 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 oh shoot, I can't remember his name. The guy who wrote it, Landis, uh, um, Max Landis. It's yes. like it's like the only decent movie he's written. But but Chronicle Correct. was fantastic it's in my top 100 like all-time favorite movies i absolutely love it um, i think it's number eight on my top movies of all time really okay no it's it's a fantastic all, movie. all three of these chronicle stuck in love and once are in my top 25 uh chronicle is actually fifth so i adore this film so so when when you say underrated it, it's tough it's tough to define that because Underrated means a couple different things. So among the general public, there are films that I love that are kind of not super well-known. But they are super well-known among people who are really into film. So like a great example is Stalker, which is an uh, Andre Tarkovsky film. And I I love Tarkovsky, uh, he, but he's kind of – He's kind of, you know, a, someone you have to like film to like Tarkovsky because he's he's super into, um, or he was super into, 
really long takes into um, movies that are kind of slow moving. But Stalker is one of my favorite movies ever, and I would strongly, strongly recommend Stalker. The cinematography on Stalker, if you're into cinematography, it's some of the best out there. Um, I will say other underrated films. Um, I'm a big fan of Peeping Tom, which came out in 1960. It's a uh, Michael Powell film uh, that uh, he directed. Michael Powell is somewhat well known as a director. He's done, uh, you know, he did The Red Shoes, which is great. Uh, he did I Know Where I'm Going, which is a pretty uh, solid movie. Uh, but Peeping Tom, it's about this uh, this guy who works at a film studio. And uh, at night he takes kind of like risque photos of women. And uh, he, during his spare time, he makes a documentary on fear and how, how people react to fear, which includes uh, murdering people and recording it while it happens. And it's just, it's a super intense movie, especially for 1960. It's a fantastic film. I would strongly, strongly recommend. And it's uh, the main character is played by Karl Heinz Boom, who's this, uh, is a German actor who is just, I mean, he plays a super creepy dude so well. And it's just like, that's a that's a really good one that's, that's underrated, I think. I mean, I think if you mention Peeping Tom among people who are like into film just because of who Michael Powell is as a director, they would probably know it. But um, yeah, so I think those are two that are that are good, uh, you know, worth watching. Fantastic. And I'll just uh, we talk about Chronicle uh, Stuck in Love is a um, it's kind of a rom-com style. Um, let me see. When did that come? I'm pulling up the IMDb page for it here. Um Give me a moment because I'm horribly prepared. Oh, it was in 2012. Uh, it's got Greg Kinnear, um, Jennifer Connelly's in it, Lily Collins. Um, it's a really solid film, very kind of hipster style, uh, where it's uh, it's a f- the main characters are writers. It's a whole family of writers, a father, son, and daughter that are all pretty much published writers. And uh, it's all of them dealing with love and uh thinking it should be something because they're very artistic people um, and learning that it might not be the thing they think it is, but it can still be something very valuable. And it's, it's really well done. I like it a lot. And the soundtrack is great. Um, It's also got Logan Lerman. I forgot about that. And (laughs) brief appearances from Kristen Bell. Great cast. Um, Would recommend. And uh, once is super underrated. The, the uh, you're talking about the one um, with the guy from uh, the Swell season in it, right? The um, it's a musical, right? It is a musical. Yes. It's a musical movie. It's the one that has um, falling slowly in it. Yeah, Glenn Hansen. Yeah, Glenn Hansen um, from Swell. Um, oh, shoot, not Swell season. I'm thinking of. Oh my gosh, The Frames. He's in The Frames. Uh, yes, the band The Frames. Yes. Yep. Yeah, so no, that's that's a. If you've heard the song "Falling Slowly," that is from the film once uh which is like a musical movie it's where it's not exactly a musical but it's about musical people um it's about an irish um street performer that's way too talented to be a street performer and uh meets a 
uh, pianist and she is like his muse for a bit they do a recording session and uh, it's all about him trying to make it big basically the music is amazing if you're into uh, folk music um, and kind of singer songwriter indie style you gotta watch it just for the music if nothing else and it actually inspired a Broadway musical of the same title uh, once using very very similar music it is I'm a theater guy Uh, it is my all-time favorite musical because to hear that kind of folk style music which is what I'm into already to hear that sung a bit more a Broadway style is amazing I would also just recommend in general checking out Glenn Hansard's music the frames are Glenn Hansard's great yeah he's great Um, also another film that I forgot to mention that's totally underrated um, is it's a documentary but it's called One More Time with Feeling. It is a documentary on Nick Cave, who um, Nick Cave is a, if you don't know who Nick Cave is, Nick Cave's been making music um, with his band. It's Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds since the late 80s, and the music is fantastic. But uh, Nick Cave released an album in 2016 called Skeleton Tree. And what happened right before 2016 was Nick Cave's son, Arthur, is 15 years old. He fell off of a cliff and died in England. And One More Time with Feeling uh, is a documentary that looks at the recording of Skeleton Tree, which is very, very much uh, impacted by the death of Nick Cave's son. And the album itself is fantastic. Um, but the documentary really dives into how uh, the death of Nick Cave's son, Arthur, impacted him and how it uh, affected his writing of Skeleton Tree. And it's, uh, it's beautiful to watch. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's sad, obviously, but it's beautiful to watch. And on top of that, the cinematography, uh, it's all in black and white, and it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it is just... It is a beautiful documentary to watch, and on top of that, it, the music is amazing. So I strongly, strongly recommend that documentary, especially if you're into Nick Cave's music and you already know who he is, totally watch that, I, like, immediately. It's, it's fantastic. I would strongly recommend it. Good stuff. I'm going to... I've got that added to my watch list. Do you know Do you know Nick Cave? Have you heard of Nick Cave? I don't. Ooh. I'm going to have to go listen to some Oh, music. you need to, yeah. You need to check out Nick Cave. He's Like I said, he's been making music since the late 80s, and he's excellent. Fantastic. All right, our next uh, couple questions here come from Dan McNamara, another staff writer here. And these are kind of this or that, one or the other. So uh, I'll just throw them at you. He, he asks, Lennon or Harrison? Yeah, so he asked that because on the Pitchless Discord earlier today, we were talking about different members of the Beatles, and um, I'm a John Lennon fan. I, I, so the Beatles are my favorite band ever of all time, and I know that's probably so cliched to say, but I absolutely love the Beatles, and I mean so much so that I know the parents of just about every Beatle like by name. I know their name. The only reason I know what day I proposed to my wife is because it also happens to be Paul McCartney's birthday, which is June the 18th. Um, so like it's, it's, it's too much. My son, my son, I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I have a son named uh, Nathaniel, Nate, his middle name is Lennon. Uh, so that's amazing. I, I like to joke, like I actually did this in a job interview once as uh, I mentioned that 
uh, Nate's middle name is Lennon. And it was like, oh, so people like to say, oh, like the Beatle. And generally I respond by saying, oh, no, 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 the communist. It's L-E-N. Nice. I did a job interview. I didn't get the job. Uh, <laughs> it was a, I, I clarified it was a joke, but um, I, yeah, I, I realized that John Lennon was a terrible person who pretty much like all but abandoned his first wife and child. But uh, I love John Lennon's music and I, I love George Harrison a lot and I love his solo stuff and his work within the Beatles, but I got to go John Lennon. I do not know the Beatles nearly well enough, nor their, <laughs> nor their solo work to have a proper opinion. Oh, I mean, so I'm just in my opinion, Plastic Ono Band and uh, Imagine are probably the two best solo Beatles albums. All Things Must Pass, which George Harrison did, is pretty close. And Band on the Run, which Paul McCartney did with Wings, is is up there. But I think I think Plastic Ono Band is my favorite, and I think. Imagine and all things must pass are pretty close. Fantastic. The next one here, I definitely do have an opinion on uh, HBO or Netflix original series. So, if we're talking series, I'll like going, if you a TV take series. them as like yeah, yeah. teams yeah. with TV series. If you're going TV, TV series, series, I'm going HBO because The Wire is my favorite TV show of all time, and I just I love a lot of HBO's TV series. Netflix has a lot of great series. But if you're going original movies, I think it probably might still be HBO because Netflix has had some duds. Like, don't get me wrong, Roma, which came out last year, Alfonso Cuaron's uh, Netflix original, was just like fantastic. Beautiful. Oh, it was incredible. I love it. I wanted to win just about every Academy Award except for some of the ones that I want to go to the favorite just because I love Yorgos Lanthimos so much. But, um, yeah, I think I think it's got to be HBO, especially TV series. I think I think HBO TV series just I think it blows Netflix out of the water. Don't get me wrong, Daredevil's amazing, and I really liked Altered Carbon. Some people didn't, uh, but a lot of Netflix original series are good. But HBO just I think wins there easily. See, I my initial thought was, oh, it's definitely HBO. But then I thought about it a second, and I was like. Well, there's Daredevil and there's American Vandal and BoJack. I love oh, BoJack is great. The beginning, the first couple seasons of House of Cards was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean that that's not to say it's, that Netflix is Netflix original series are bad. It's, oh no, it's there's, more to there's say fantastic ones. That, it's more to say that HBO is, I think, more consistently strong. I agree. I think The Wire is probably the best tv show of all time it's amazing yeah um game of thrones is game of thrones is great five tv show of all time i i had a little bit of a problem with uh two seasons ago of game of thrones just because i i love the books and they kind of just annihilated the the whole dorn plot line in a way that was just Oh, same. I'm right. Very much right. They turned. They turned. Well, and that was they rough. turned the sand snakes into teenage mutant ninja turtle villains, and it was just ridiculous. But anyways, we don't need anyways. we can do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last one from Dan. Uh, he wants to know uh, swinging strike rate or whiff rate, and apparently this is also an inside. This bit. is a thing. So for the past five or six years, I have been saying whiff rate in place of swinging strike rate and interchangeably interchangeably, yes and i think 
And I'm not alone. A lot of people in the in- industry have done that. I've seen uh, – I Googled it just, just to check. Our own Dave Sherman did it in his Plate Discipline article. Um, Alex Chamberlain did it on Fangraphs. And uh, in my slider, best sliders article, Dan uh, kindly corrected me and informed me that swinging strike rate and whiff rate are two separate things. Swinging strike rate uh, is um, – on fan graphs, uh, and it covers, uh, if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong. Swinging strike rate yes. is misses over total over pitches. total pitches. While whiff swings rate, and misses divided by total pitches, right. while whiff rate is, is swings and misses divided by total swings. swings. Right. The, the reason I know that is because when I saw this question, I asked Dan, "Are those different things?" <laughs> because I also did not know that nobody does, but. Um, Dan, I mean, in Dan's defense, he makes a decent point that they are two different metrics. Now, whiff rate, the specific whiff rate that um, Dan is referencing uh, is is on Baseball Savant. And Baseball Savant only shows whiff rate, whereas Fangraphs only shows swinging strike percentage. Um, and and the example that Dan likes to give is Zach Wheeler. So Zach Wheeler, for example, has a curveball with a swinging strike rate of 13%, but a whiff rate of 38%. And so what that suggests uh, to Dan is that when hitters are swinging at his curveball, they can't touch it. But he may not be able to command the curveball well enough to consistently fool hitters. And that that explains the difference between his whiff between his uh, swinging strike rate and his whiff rate. So I think that's fair, and and that's just something that uh, we've we've been discussing lately about whether we uh, should make a specific effort to differentiate on pitcher lists. So and that is something we will be doing going forward, and that's what I've been doing. As we should, I think. Yeah, I mean they are two separate stats. Separate stats. stats. Um, But just know that if you see someone say whiff rate, they may mean swinging strike rate. So uh, and the difference between the two I think is somewhat negligible, but they are different. So and it's and it is important to differentiate between the two. Sure. Good stuff. All right, now Miles Nelson has a fun one here, uh, finishing out here. He's got two separate questions. Uh, what do you think is the worst Best Picture Oscar nominations of the past decade, excluding 2019? Um, because we have some kind of obvious ones in 2019 that we don't want to discuss. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> <clears throat> You know what's funny is like I I've been like talking about how Bohemian Rhapsody was a dumb Best Picture nomination. Like I didn't dislike Bohemian Rhapsody. I actually kind of liked it because I like Queen's music, but it did not deserve Best Picture at all. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, and then his second one is going to be, what do you think is the biggest Best Picture snub of the past decade? So I'll let you go. I have my thoughts, but I'll let you go first. All right. Well, for worst nominations, uh. My my number one, I think the worst Best Picture nomination is Avatar. Now, this is a little bit, I think, contentious with some people because there are people out there who love Avatar. I don't. I think Avatar was okay. I think it's just Pocahontas in space. And I think Avatar was just so overrated, in my opinion. I, you know, some people love it. 
I am of the camp that loves you Avatar. You love Avatar? Okay. For, for a while, it was in my top 25. It has since been pushed out, but I I really did enjoy Avatar. I thought it was extremely well done. Did you see it in theaters? Gr- I did not. No, the first time I saw it, I rented it. Because uh, I know but, uh, I know a lot of people saw it in theaters, especially if they saw it in 3D, and they were just like, oh, man, it's an experience. The, I mean – the effects, like the the CGI and the the visual effects that they had, were unprecedented and groundbreaking and very impressive. Um, I agree with you. The story is a bit wanting at times. Like I said, it's Pocahontas um, in space. That's all it is. Yeah, you're not wrong. Pocahontas oh. instead of Native Americans. Like I'm surprised. I'm, I'm surprised at some point. Like all of the all of the oh shoot, I can't even remember what are the blue people called Navi. Is that what they're called? Navi. I'm surprised they didn't at some point start going savage, savage. Like it was just, it was. I, yeah, it, it lacked. It was a. I think it was a movie that was effects heavy. That was my. It was, yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of what they were going. And for. And I don't think that's um, worthy of a best picture nomination. Totally reasonable. Especially I think in a, if you're going to if you're going to do something like that, best picture nomination. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can, I can get behind that. I, I, while I love the film, there were, it may not be worth the best picture. Nomination. And um, and also in that me, same in that same year, 2010. Uh, there's just there's just a couple more that I think are bad best picture nominations. That same year, The Blind Side got nominated for best picture. Like, eh, it was okay. Um, it was good. It was you know it was yeah. fine. But is it a best picture? Eh, I don't know. Uh, especially after it turned out that Michael Orr was kind of a garbage left tackle. Um, but <laughs> just you know a uh, a false start penalty waiting to happen. Um, also, 2013, Zero Dark Thirty got a best picture nomination. It was okay. Like I don't know. It was it was very Catherine Bigelow, um, and it was like half of it was cool because it was the you know Bin Laden uh, raid, and the other half was like let's talk about it in an office. Uh, and then 2017 Darkest Hour, you know, you know I like Gary Oldman as much as the next guy, and you know seeing Gary Oldman in makeup yelling at people as Winston Churchill is great and all. But, you know, it was a biopic that um, I've always said there's two categories of biopics. There's there's biopics that focus on a specific section of a person's life and kind of draw out the character of that person and kind of dive into who they are as a human being and develop them. And those are great. There are also biopics that kind of act as a living Wikipedia page. And that's basically what Darkest Hour was. And that's what Bohemian Rhapsody was, which was this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And so, you know, I like Darkest Hour well enough. You know, it wasn't – I'm not saying it was a bad movie, but I didn't like it as a Best Picture nominee. But those are my worst Best Picture nominations. Sure. And for me, worst Best Picture nominations are actually snubs of ones that didn't get nominated, um, both in 2010. Or sorry, 2014. Why did I say 2014? 2014. Um I was so disappointed to see that neither Inside Lewin Davis nor Fruitvale Station received a Best Picture I'm, nomination. I'm 100% with you on Inside Lewin Davis. He, that was a – I love the Coen brothers. They're probably Same. my favorite directors of all time. What's your favorite Coen brothers movie? It might be Inside Lewin Davis. Really? For me, it's Big Lebowski. I think it is, actually. It's Big Lebowski for me. But um, but Inside Lewin Davis is is excellent. 
and I it's very very good. I also think it's better than a serious man which did get a best picture nomination the year it came out uh, see I haven't seen a serious man yet so you I should, need to get around it's good that. no it's definitely good especially if you like Coen Brothers but yeah um, yeah Inside Llewyn Davis was great the music was fantastic correct and yeah the fact that it didn't get a best picture nominee is is a bummer and I think leaving Fruitvale Station out is a crime. If you haven't seen Fruitvale Station, it is one of the most moving films I have ever seen. Me and my buddy went to see it in theaters, and afterwards, he and I just sat in our seat, staring at the screen, not saying a word during the credits. And it was, we walked out, and we didn't, I don't think we said a word until we got to the car, and we were just like. Damn. Yeah, I I haven't seen it unfortunately. It's on my watch it's, list. I have I have a watch list of movies that's over fifteen hundred movies long. So it's see my watch list is right around five hundred. So yeah, it's it's I've got a watch list on Just Watch that. Um, by the way, small plug: if you don't use JustWatch.com, hundred percent use it. It's a search engine for streaming movies sites. Ooh, so if you're like yeah, out. if you're just like I wonder if you know. Batman from like 1989. I wonder if Tim Burton's Batman is streaming somewhere. You search it, boom. Oh, it's on Netflix or oh, it's on HBO Go or Cinemax or whatever. It just, you search a movie. If you want to know if it's streaming somewhere, it's there. And what I do when I want to watch a movie, because the the worst part of watching a movie sometimes is picking the movie. That's what takes the longest, right? Oh yeah. You spend, you spend 45 minutes scrolling through Netflix before you decide I'll just watch a rerun of The Office. So, So what what I do is I create this watch list as I go along of movies that I know I want to watch at some point. I make my watch list on Just Watch. Then you can filter your watch list on Just Watch by streaming service. So the streaming services that you have, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, whatever. So then what I do is I pull up my watch list, filter it by the streaming services I have, and then just scroll at random and pick a random movie. And that's it. Okay, I am I am getting this. And that that's that's what I do. That's how I pick movies because I know if it's on my watch list, at some point I decided I want to see this movie, and so I just let fate basically pick my movie for me, and that completely takes all of the decision making out of figuring out a movie that I want to watch. Sure. And so I have this watch list of fifteen hundred movies or so. I sort it by all of the different streaming services I have. And just randomly pick one, and it's it's like the best thing ever. It's great, awesome. But yeah, I would definitely have put Fruitvale and uh, Lewin Davis in probably in place of American Sniper and Selma, both of which were solid. Um, yeah, I think Fruitvale Fruitvale might get the message of Selma across as well as. Uh, as Selma did. Okay. Which is saying something. It's definitely something I need. And, definitely a movie I need to see. I will. I will definitely. See and the and I just. I. I wasn't a fan of American Sniper in particular. But I actually. I, I actually haven't seen American films. Sniper either. But I heard kind of like mixed things about it. Yeah, I, I, I'm just not a big fan of most war films in general. General, and like. In general, full metal, like full metal jacket. I, I haven't seen it. You haven't seen Full Metal Jacket? It's, oh my 
It's on my watch list, but it's like I I don't Put really it very watch. high on your watch list. It is okay. I, I I will I will get around. Like there's so many classics that I yeah. need to get around. Full Metal Jacket, Saving Private Ryan is another great movie. Saving Private Ryan, I've seen. Pad, Paths of fantastic. Glory, Paths of Glory, the Stanley Kubrick film. I haven't seen it. Old old film, uh, World War One film, fantastic. Uh, Paths of Glory, it's in my top hundred. I I love it. It's Stanley Kubrick. It's early Kubrick. Um, with um, uh, uh. Sh- Michael Douglas is dead. Kirk Douglas, sorry, yeah, Kirk Douglas uh, is in it, and it's it's excellent. Strong, I would strongly recommend that. Okay, I'll add that one to the list as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and the other half of the question: uh, biggest best picture snubs. So I I, I did this as uh, the winners. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, I'll let you go first in this one as well. Uh, so biggest snub for me, I've got I've got three snubs I want to talk about. And the biggest one for me is uh, 2000 again 2010. So the Hurt Locker won Best Picture, um, which it was a fine movie and I enjoyed it. But um, that's 2009. Sorry, two, well yeah sorry, yes 2009. The Academy Awards occurred in 2010. That's sure. my bad. I, I, yeah. I, um, so Inglorious Bastards. A Serious Man and Up were all nominated for Best Picture, and I would have taken all three of those over Hurt Locker in a heartbeat. Uh, so that's the biggest snub for me. Um, minor snubs, uh, 2008 or I guess 2007, uh, No Country for Old Men won Best Picture. I absolutely love No Country for Old Men, so I'm fine with that. But There Will Be Blood was also nominated and I adore There Will Be Blood. I, I love Paul Thomas Anderson in general. I, I think the man can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I would have taken There Will Be Blood over No Country for Old Men, but it's close. And the final one, uh, the year Moonlight won. I loved Moonlight. I thought Moonlight was great. I would have preferred Arrival. I loved Arrival. I love Arrival was amazing. I love everything that Denis Villeneuve uh, directs. I am. I am here for it. Prisoners is one of my favorite films of all time. Oh, Prisoners is great. It's in my top twenty-five. Oh, Prisoners is incredible. Prisoners is absolutely incredible. Um, it is one of the darkest films you'll ever so see. So dark. Oh my gosh, the, it's so good. The best performance Hugh Jackman has ever put on, in my ever. opinion. Um, and Gyllenhaal as and well. And probably both. Jake Gyllenhaal as well. Yeah. Um, uh, Villeneuve also did Blade Runner 2049, which is also in my top 100. Just on my incredible, watch. incredible film. The cinematography from Roger Deakins. So one of the great things about Villeneuve is he also he often works with Roger Deakins, who is, in my opinion, probably the greatest cinematographer in history. Uh, Deakins did a lot of work with the Coen brothers, and he does a lot of work with Villeneuve. And he finally won his first Oscar for Blade Runner 2049. It was 100% deserved. Uh, Good. But Sicario, Enemies, uh, Polytechnique, I just fantastic movies all over the place. Denis Villeneuve. Oh, absolutely. And he's doing Dune, and I'm so excited because Dune is such an incredible book. And if there's anybody who can do a good Dune movie, it's going to be Denis Villeneuve, and I'm I'm so excited. But if you don't know who Denis Villeneuve is, go watch every movie he's ever directed ever. Just watch all of them. He is the, in my opinion, the best director who is currently making movies. Just, I love him. Wow, that's high I love him so much. Absolutely. He has not made a bad movie. And in fact, all of the movies he's made have been either very good, 
which Polytechnic I think is very good, to Amazing, which Prisoners, Enemies, uh, Sicario, Arrival, and Blade Runner are all just fantastic movies. Absolutely. Um, for me, the biggest snub in the past decade uh, is actually in 2010. Um, the King's Speech won in 2010, and I didn't like the King's Speech. And I know there's a big, huge group that did, and that's fine. I like. I, I recognize. It. I recognize it's a it's a solid film. It's a it's a good film. I reckon like. I can put past my personal feelings for it and recognize it's a good film, but the social network is better. I agree. I, I agree. I I would have rather seen both the social network or Inception so, win over the King's. So Beach. honestly, Inception is my favorite movie of 2010, and I think – yeah, I agree with you. Uh, social network, I like better than the King's Speech. Toy Story 3 was nominated for Best Picture. I like yeah. that better than the King's Speech. And Winter's Bone was nominated for Best Picture. And I like that better than The King's Speech as well. Um, yeah. That's not to say I don't like The King's Speech. I think The King's Speech is a very good movie. And it's, a, it's a really well done movie. But uh, yeah, I would take uh, Inception 100%. Uh, Christopher Nolan's, it's a little cliche to say it, but he, yeah, he's fantastic. But he's brilliant. Social Network is... Even, Either Social Network or A Few Good Men is the best movie Aaron Sorkin's ever written, and and I, I'm not quite sure which one I like better, but yeah, Social, Social Network is twentieth on my list. I, I I love that film. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic film without a doubt, and it's got great rewatch value. Oh yeah, I mean just they couldn't have picked a better actor in Jesse Eisenberg and uh, yeah, you know, Army Hammer is great in it and just the writing is any Aaron's, Andrew Garfield's fantastic Andrew Garfield's fantastic and you know even Justin Timberlake's pretty solid but any he really is any movie where uh, that Aaron Sorkin writes the writing the dialogue's gonna be great and the dialogue is especially good in that yes it is and the way that Eisenberg can very quickly and get a lot of words out yes. very, very dense line uh, so quickly and so matter of factly is impressive. it's it's perfect for Sorkin dialogue too it really yeah. is uh, the other one that I would note and it's less so uh, than than uh, 2010 but it, 2014 I'll go back to that one and I really think Whiplash should have won over Birdman um, Whiplash is my fourth favorite film of all time. I adore that movie. It is one. I, I really do think it's one of the greatest like single performances from. Um, really, Miles Teller was fantastic in it. But oh my J.K. Gosh, Simmons. On, J.K. Simmons. Yes, J.K. Yeah. Simmons. Thank you. Yeah, I think like one of the right. greatest performances of the decade. It, it, maybe even further back from J.K. Simmons of single performances and I, I wasn't a big I don't like Birdman see, um, I recognize I recognize I, re I see its value it, it's fantastic cinematography um, the acting was very good but I it, it, I've got whole other issues of Birdman that could be a whole <laughs> I, yeah I, Whiplash I think definitely should have I understand the love for Whiplash I love Whiplash it's in my top 100 of all time um, I like Birdman a little better. I thought, um, you know, you mentioned the cinematography on Birdman, which was fantastic. 
the way the way that um, uh, Inaritu made it look like this continuous one shot through the whole movie is incredible. I thought um, Michael Keaton, Zach Galifianakis, Edward Norton were all excellent. And I thought Edward Norton's performance was especially good in that. Oh, role especially or? Edward Norton playing basically Edward Norton <laughs> was. Excellent. I I really did enjoy his performance. Yeah, and it was it was a pretty meta movie on some levels, but I thought um, what I loved about it was uh, it, it was a really good it was a really good character study on um, Michael Keaton's character specifically on a man who was very concerned about his legacy, about how he will be remembered for his art and for his performances after he dies. And it kind of dove into this discussion about um, high art, low art, you know, are superhero movies art in the same way that live theater is art, you know, which one's better is one better. Um, I thought that was a really interesting discussion and there was also a small little discussion I thought uh, that was interesting about the dynamic between the performer and the critic, especially in the scene where um, Michael Keaton's character is in the bar talking with uh, the critic. And it kind of uh, makes the case for why critics are the way they are and why actors are the way they are, too. So um, I thought it was a really interesting, really thought-provoking film uh, that was technically really well done, and I, I I loved it. I loved Birdman. I remember I saw it in theaters with a friend of mine, and we walked out of it just like, wow, that was really good. Like I loved it. But I totally get people who don't like it. It, it you know it it's not and it's very very meta. very meta, and especially with Michael Keaton playing you know an actor who played a superhero in the past who wants to be taken seriously. Um, like with the reason I don't like it is I think it's just trying to do too much at times I can understand that and I and I think it's not an accessible movie I I would not say it is easily accessible for your average moviegoer and that's why like you know when my parents saw it and my dad said I didn't like Birdman I'm like yeah that that makes sense because my dad's just you know when it comes to watching movies my dad just likes you know regular old movies he's not he's not really into a movie that's going to make you think too hard and so when he came away did not liking birdman yeah i get that uh, you know it's it's one of those movies i think you either love it or you just really did not like it pretty understandable all right that wraps it up for our questions so before we get off here i had just a couple uh questions that i just personally want to ask uh who do you think wins best picture this year um yep i think i think the favorite could do it i think roma could definitely do it so i i think if i have to pick one i'm gonna say i'm gonna say the favorite i love the favorite i'm i'm really excited that yorgos is getting the recognition that i think he finally deserves uh just his his work on on dog tooth on alps on Lobster on Killing of a Sacred Deer. He's he is excellent. Um, he didn't write the favorite, so it doesn't really have the trademark Yorgos feel to it. But his direction on it is excellent, and I at very least I would love to see him win Best Director. I think I could see I could easily see Favorite or Roma winning Best Picture, for sure. Solid. Uh, last question I got for you: uh, How many games are the 2019 Orioles going to win? <laughs> I think the easier question is how many they're going to lose. 
I, I actually asked on Twitter uh, a couple weeks ago, I said, do you think the Orioles will lose more or fewer than the 115 games they lost last year? And the overwhelming majority said fewer. And I think that's probably right. I think they're a 100-loss team. I don't know that they're 115. So, you know, if you say they lose 110 and win 52, I, I think that's that's fair. Um but the the main thing, the question I have, honestly, is they lost 115 games last year, and for half the year they had Manny Machado, um, a halfway decent. I mean, Jonathan Scope was kind of struggling, um, but they had like their team didn't get better in the second half. The team got worse because they sold off everybody, understandably so. I mean, they should have, but just Manny Machado alone, Adam Jones as well. You know, we're both productive players. So, if they lost 115 games last year and for half the year they had good players and then they got worse, I think I could see the argument of them losing 115 or more this year. Um, but, you know, I think there could be some surprises. I think Trey Mancini bounces back a little bit. I think they sign one or two guys. Adam Jones, maybe one of them. Um, I think. Trumbo could do decently. Uh, I have hope, honestly. Believe it or not, I have hope for Chris Davis. And the reason I have hope for Chris Davis is because, well, partly, there's nowhere to go but up. I mean, he had, he yeah. had last year, he had the worst season in the history of the major of Major League Baseball. Just, I mean, not like arguably, like statistically, of all qualifying hitters, he had the worst season in history. So, He's not going to get worse, probably. Um, but I think you're entering with the Orioles. You're entering a new regime with uh, with Michael with uh, Elias as the GM, with a new manager in Brandon Hyde, and with an analytics department for the first time in God knows ever how long ever. <laughs> Uh, I, I was at Orioles Fan Fest and Sig, Sig Meidel, uh, who's the head of the analytics department and who helped build the analytics department in Houston, um, he talked and um, he people were asking him, like, what do the Orioles need to do uh, to get ahead of the game in analytics? And Sig Meidel's response was, well, we need to get in the game first and we need to, like, start from zero. Like, we have nothing right now, so we need to build something. I trust Sigma Dell from an analytics perspective. I trust Elias. I think Hyde's going to be a decent manager. And so I think with this new regime, I could see them approaching Davis and being like, here's what you need to work on. Here's something different. Here's something new. And if Davis is willing to take that criticism and take and and make those adjustments i think it's possible i also think that he well i know he sees himself as potentially the veteran leader of the orioles i was i was talking with my um parents the other day about like who's the veteran in the clubhouse who's the veteran leader in the orioles clubhouse is it mark trumbo not really like trumbo doesn't strike me as a you know, a, a veteran leader type. You know, it was Adam Jones. He's gone. You know, if Jones comes back, then then it's him. But Chris Davis has said that he believes it's him. He believes he is the veteran leader in that clubhouse. And by service time, he is. But by skill level, I mean he's 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 terrible. And it's hard to be a leader when you're the worst player on the team. So 
I could see a scenario in which a new regime and a new situation inspires Chris Davis to make some noticeable changes and improve his game. Is he going to be amazing? No. But could he become a serviceable player again? I think it's possible. If he puts in the work, uh, that that's going to be the key. If he puts in the work. And that was something that last year Jim Palmer, uh, famous Orioles, uh, Hall of Fame Orioles pitcher and um, their color commentator, uh, called Davis out on uh, a lot last year. He called Davis out in post games. He would show – like there was one post game uh, thing where Palmer was showing a replay of Davis with a pitch coming in and Davis was looking at third base. He wasn't even looking at the pitch coming in. And Palmer was sitting there going like, you know, this isn't cool. This isn't acceptable. And I think I could see – I'll give you a 60-second timer here, Ben. I'm just saying I could see a scenario where Davis improves himself because of the new situations in the new regime. That's all. So, yeah, I'm going to say – 108 losses for the Orioles next year. <laughs> it is truly impressive how long you can spend talking about the Orioles. It's, yeah, it's a long time. Because <laughs> I think without prompting there and without any interruption, I just kind of let you go for like maybe three or four minutes. <laughs> yeah, I could go. I, I could probably go wasn't longer. that long. I could definitely go longer. <laughs> Well, we've gone plenty long on this podcast, so we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, ben, where are you at on Twitter one more time? I am at Ben J. Palmer, if you'd like to follow me on Fantastic. Twitter. Fantastic. And he's got some great stuff. He's constantly putting out uh, different statistics and, th- and analytics and things like that. So and gifts. Ben's a great follow there on Twitter. And gifts. During, during the baseball season, I, I tweet out all kinds of gifts. He does. It's great stuff. Give him a follow over there. Uh, ben, you got any last thoughts that are non-Baltimore related? <laughs> no, just, uh, just you know, keep checking out PitcherList. Join the PitcherList Discord. It's a lot of fun. The PitcherList community Discord is a blast. A lot of people Absolutely. talking you can baseball. Hop on there by, uh, and, uh, on there by supporting us on, on Patreon. Um, yep. on Patreon. And yep. um, next, next week, my outfield rankings, well... They're not my personal rankings, but the uh, pitcher list uh, staff can, uh, outfield rankings will be coming out, and I'll be writing that article. So be sure to keep an eye out for that. There's be there will be twenty uh, spots of each outfield ranking coming out each day of the week next week. So be sure to check that out and check out the rest of our positional rankings. Catcher's already out. First base is already out. I think is second base out yet? I think it's. I think it dropped today. Yeah, I think it dropped today. So yeah, check those out too. And uh, yeah, outfield will be coming out next week. And I have a feeling I'm probably going to do a going deep piece on Anibal Sanchez. So uh, check that out too. I did a whole long Twitter thread on Anibal, and I think I'm going to turn that into a whole article because I'm really fascinated by him uh, coming into this year. So that up, it happens. Stuff. He's a busy man, folks. Does all that with two kids and a wife. <laughs> very busy man. I have a very, very patient and kind wife who is has been watching the kids the whole time we've been doing this podcast. <laughs> well, hopefully by now they're, they have been asleep yeah, for a while. So. <laughs> we are past midnight and we're going to sign off here. So for Ben Palmer, my name is Austin Bristow II and this has been On The List.